0: Well, good morning again. I'm grateful to be able to bring God's Word to you today. Today we're back in 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you have a copy of God's Word with you, will you please turn to 1 Peter 3. If you do not have one with you, the text is also printed in your bulletin. We're going to begin in verse 8. The last several weeks we've been in this section where Peter is focusing on how we are to live as exiles in this world. Peter spent the first chapter and a half telling us about the joy and the hope of our election by God. We have been given new birth. We have an imperishable inheritance. And we're being built up into a spiritual house as the church. But our time now is a time of suffering. In the midst of our joy and hope. If you trust in Jesus, you have already been saved, but you have not yet come to the fullness of your salvation. So we live in this in-between time where we have already been given the first fruits of what is to come. Before we hear God's Word though and what it has to tell us, let's ask that He would help us both to understand and obey it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know your Son, Jesus Christ, better. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills, so that we may hear your word and believe it. Overcome our stubborn hearts and show us your path of life. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life, and see good days, Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to approach this text today by asking three questions. First, we're going to ask, what is God telling us to do? What is he commanding us to do in this text? And then second, we're going to ask, why is he telling us to do these things? And then finally, we're going to look at our motivation. How does God motivate us to do what he asks? First, we'll see what God is telling us to do. Peter is going to answer that in two ways. First, in verse 8, he tells us to love our Christian brother's And sisters. These are his directions for what our conduct should look like among believers. Then in verse 9, he tells us to bless those who insult us. This is his direction for how we are to live among unbelievers. The main theme of 1 Peter is how we as Christians should respond to the outside, unbelieving, sometimes hostile world. But he doesn't neglect the conduct of Christians within the body. He's already told us that we are a holy nation, a spiritual house, a royal priesthood. We have been purchased as a people, not merely as individuals. Here, Peter breaks into his discussion about our conduct in and amongst the world, and he focuses on how we should treat each other. Verse 8 says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, And a humble mind. Peter begins with finally showing that he is summarizing and in some ways breaking with what he has said in the last several sections. Remember, Peter dealt with various particular instances that Christians might find themselves in. He talked about slaves and how they are to respond to their masters, even unjust masters. And then last week, we looked at wives and husbands and how they should live among each other. Now Peter turns to all of you, and he opens the discussion back up by addressing everyone in the room. What follows is a list of five character traits that believers should have toward each other. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I want you to see that this isn't just a random grocery list of character traits that Peter threw together. These actually have a particular structure to them. The first and the last term are related. Both make reference to the mind, especially how we view our mind in relation to other people. The second term and the fourth term are almost the same. Sympathy means that you are able to join with someone in their emotions, particularly in this case in your suffering. And a tender heart is being stirred in your emotions and affections towards someone. And then the middle term, brotherly love or familial love, has no counterpart. It's highlighted because it's the middle term. In literature, this is called a chiasm. It's where the text builds up to a point and then goes back down from that point. And the the purpose is to highlight the middle point. These other characteristics complement the characteristic of brotherly love, which means they explain what our love is supposed to look like for each other. And here's what God commands of us. We are to have both unity of mind and humility of mind. The first one, unity of mind, can only be commanded of Christians with one another. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then he shows us what the basis for that unity is. He says there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Our unity of mind comes from the fact that we are confessing the same faith, trusting the same Christ, belonging to the same body. We are one. But this unity of mind is not uniformity of mind. It doesn't mean that every one of us agrees on every single thing. We may disagree on whether we are glad or sad that Duke lost last night or on how best to spend money as a Christian, or which political issues we should focus on. Unity doesn't mean we agree on everything, but it does mean that we are never adversaries. We are a family. We are all united to one another in the body of Christ. This is why we confess our common faith together every week, like we did a few minutes ago. It reminds us of the foundation for our unity. Tightly linked with this unity of mind is humility of mind. When Paul writes to the Philippians who are suffering from divisions in the church, he says, "...complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Here Paul links having one mind or unity of mind with humility. If we are going to have differences of opinion on some things, humility demands that we not let those things overtake our unity. We will not let politics or school choices or carpet color threaten our unity as God's people. Humility also demands that You not think too highly of your own abilities, especially in this case, your intellectual abilities. Often you get the most frustrated when you are convinced that your opinion about those things is right, and no one else has thought about it as much or as clearly as you have. That may be true, but that also might be pride, telling you to look down on the opinions Of others. Humility of mind allows for the possibility that someone else might be right. It recognizes that God gives his wisdom to the whole church, not just to you or to me. And so it demands that we listen and consider the thoughts and opinions of others in the church. The other two terms working inwardly are also closely related. Sympathy, and a tender heart. Sympathy is joining with someone in their emotions. I mentioned that it is especially with reference to suffering. The root word here, pathos, is usually a word that we talk about with respect to suffering, but it's also broader than that. Paul says in Romans 12:15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And then again in 1 Corinthians 12:26. If one member, meaning one member of the body, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. A tender heart is a little bit harder to translate. In the King James Version, it is, also, it is often translated bowels. This is one example from 1 John 3.17. He says, but whoever has this world's goods... And sees his brother in need and shuts up his bowels from him. How can the love of God dwell in him? These are affections, cares, concerns, your gut instinct toward your brothers and your sisters. Both of these characteristics mean that we don't get to be isolated as Christians. When we see someone in our church or a Christian in another church suffering, We don't get to turn a blind eye and just think about the fact that everything is just fine with us today. The final trait, the middle term, is brotherly love or familial love. This doesn't just tell us what to do, but it tells us who we are. Just like the earlier parts of the letter told us that we were God's children, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a spiritual house, Peter now reminds us again that the people of God are a new family. When you look at the person in the chair in front of you or across the table from you at community group, you aren't just looking at a colleague or a neighbor or a pal. The Lord tells you you are looking at your family, your kin. And the responsibility that we feel to love and care for our family is the same responsibility that God tells us that we are to have to others in Christ's church. This is how God has created His people to function, as an alternative community, as a new society that is ruled by unity and humility of mind, sympathy and affection for one another, and familial love. Notice how important this is at this point in Peter's letter. Peter has just told us that we will suffer as Christians in this world. We are exiles. And he's told us the particular ways that some of us are going to have to endure. Slaves must endure in a particular way. Husbands and wives must endure in a particular way. And we can add that those who are single, widows and widowers, high schoolers, Children, parents with wayward children, and the list could go on and on. All of us must endure in a particular way as Christians. And what Peter is saying is, you are never alone in that. You have a family around you that rises and falls with your ups and your downs. They comfort you. And challenge you. They remind you of both the promises and the commands of God in the midst of your particular calling as a Christian. All of this sounds great, but it requires some things of us. It requires first that we know each other. Maybe no one is rejoicing when you are rejoicing, or weeping when you weep, because you haven't told them that you are rejoicing. Or weeping. And I don't mean posting it on Facebook. I mean when someone asks you the question, how was your week, answering that question honestly. We are a family, not the Rotary Club. We cannot obey the commands of being a family unless we know one another. That means both seeking to know others and seeking to be known by others. This is what we are called to as a family. The next verse, verse 9, tells us how we should relate to others outside of the church, the society that surrounds us, where we are exiles. And most of the time, people see group identity as a zero-sum game. If you are going to have a strong identity as a group, as a collection of people... Typically, we think that you must have disdain for those outside of your group. Or if you don't, you'll have a weak sense of belonging within the group. Christianity refuses that dichotomy. This church is your family. It is the most important identifier of who you are. However, Jesus and all the Scriptures reject the idea that we must be hostile to, to the world around us because of that. We are called to a different response. Read verse 9 with me to see that response. Peter says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Reviling is a specific kind of, of evil, It's an evil of the tongue. It means that someone is insulting you, slandering you, gossiping about you. One commentator says that this kind of reviling would have been insult, defamation of character, and verbal abuse, weapons typically used to publicly shame and discredit those who you thought might be your competitor. We already saw this in chapter 2, verse 11. When they speak against you, as evildoers. Now, step back from the text for a second. Can you think of a time or a situation where someone was or maybe currently is reviling you, speaking evil against you, insulting you, or discrediting your character? Maybe it's because you won't join them in their sin. Maybe they think your views about sexuality and gender are backwoods and bigoted. Maybe they just don't like you and they use your Christian beliefs as an opportunity to attack your character. Think for a minute who is speaking evil against you? Now ask this how do you respond? When someone says or does those things to you, what do you want to say back to them? Are you tempted to take the worldly approach to enemies? Where you put on a counterattack and defend your honor by defaming theirs? Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God is not that way. What Peter commands is that instead of returning another blow, we respond by blessing them. Instead of attacking their character, we are to genuinely seek their well-being. Instead of giving a counter-argument and pointing out the arrogance of their own views, we are called to kill the strife. What is so hard about this is that Peter doesn't even tell us to shut our mouths and leave the situation alone. This is not just non-retaliation. We are commanded to really and truly desire good... For those who hurt us. God demands that we seek their good. Sometimes it's hard to think about how we can do something like this. We feel like we need to do some big thing that would get 10,000 views on YouTube if it were videoed. Reality normally looks a lot different than that. Rosaria Butterfield is the name of a woman who used to be a professor at Syracuse University. Rosaria was a professor of English and women's studies and had a focus in feminist theory and queer theory. She was a practicing lesbian and in 1997 began research for a piece critiquing Jesus, Republican politics, and patriarchy. Around this time, she received a letter from a Christian man in Syracuse. The letter was not cutting and cruel, like so many of the other letters from Christians had been. Instead, he calmly asked her about some of her underlying beliefs, and astonishingly to her, he invited her to dinner at his house with he and his wife to talk some more. How ordinary, how simple, and yet how amazing it would be if we acted like this. Think about the times in your life where someone sought to criticize you. Think about the times that someone set themselves up as your opponent. What our sinful nature tells us and what our culture tells us to do is to fight back. Defend yourself. Talk bad about them so people will know how stupid they are. Instead, God asks you, how could you return blessing for cursing? It's what God is calling us to. He is commanding us to relate to those inside His church with familial love and care. And He is commanding us to relate to those outside the church, even those who are hostile to us, with blessing instead of cursing. The second question is, why? Why is God telling us to do these things? We already talked about the fact that within the church, we are called to be an alternative society. When you experience exile, estrangement, alienation in the broader culture, you are to find the comfort of a home in the church. When you are experiencing suffering in the world, you should experience sympathy and love in the church. But those things and the church is not an end in itself. The church does not simply exist for itself as a kind of cul-de-sac of love and comfort. We exist and are built up so that those outside the church would come into the church. We are always meant to be growing, expanding. God is not just growing you personally. He is growing us, corporately. Jesus said to his disciples just before he ascended into heaven, "'Go, therefore.'" And make disciples of all nations. 1 Peter 2, verse 12, where this section began, reminds us that our conduct is before outsiders, before unbelievers. Ultimately, we hope that our conduct results in their conversion, their leaving their sin and coming to Christ. Our hope when we treat people like this is that they would be included in the eternal blessing Peter promises at the end of verse 9. This is why God calls us to live in this way. And you may think, yeah, right. That never happens. No one will become a Christian just because I am kind and patient and loving toward them. But in the story I just told you about Rosaria Butterfield, that is exactly what happened. She went from being a tenured professor of queer theory living a lesbian lifestyle and hostile to Christianity, to a devout Christian who writes and speaks frequently about the change that God has done in her. It didn't happen right away. She had many dinners and many discussions with that man and his wife. And it didn't happen just because they were nice to her. They had discussions and asked questions about who Jesus is and what the Bible teaches. But eventually God used them and His Word to change her heart and to change her life. Whom is God using you to point to Jesus? Who is someone who it would make sense for you to revile in return, that instead you are being called to bless? Pray for them, but also do the hard work of engaging with them. Showing them love and patience and telling them the joyful message of the gospel. The final question we need to answer is how. How does God motivate us to do these things? God is calling us to self-sacrificial love, both in the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ. If we just talk about that in the abstract, that can seem pretty simple. But loving someone in the church who doesn't reciprocate that love is not easy. Talking with your neighbor and moving the discussion from March Madness to what they think about Jesus is not easy. Those things are not easy, especially when you think about how often it seems like we get no results. This brings us to verses 10 through 12, this quote from Psalm 34. Read these with me. Psalm 34 is a psalm about the righteous experiencing trouble and affliction. And David says several things in that psalm and in the rest of, in those verses and in the rest of the psalm that line up very closely with 1 Peter about choosing to suffer instead of choosing to sin. But it's the final verse of this quote that helps us answer that question how does God motivate us to do these things? Look at verse 12 again with me. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The for at the beginning of that verse is a term of purpose or of cause. It could also be translated because. Those who pursue peace when they could simply return evil for evil do so for a reason. They bless those who hate them for a reason. The reason is that the eyes of the Lord are upon them. This repeats the phrase or the idea that we've seen a few times already in 1 Peter about our actions being gracious in the sight of God and about our lifestyle being very precious in God's sight. You care about what people think of you. It's not fun when people don't like you. When someone publicly humiliates you or calls into question what you believe, it doesn't feel good. You are hurt and burdened by the fact that people would speak evil against you. And what Peter realizes is that in order for us to follow God's commands, in order for us to suffer well and endure in the face of temptation, you need something greater than the praise or the approval of other people. You need something more motivating than other people liking you and approving of what you do. So Peter gives you that. He tells you that in your endurance, the eyes of the Lord are upon you. You are pleasing to the Lord when you follow Him, even as you stumble along following Him. He sees your endurance. He sees your love. He sees your faith. Even when no one else sees and when no one else praises you, the Lord does. Jesus points this out in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that the Pharisees do all their good works before men because they want the praise and the reward of men. But, he says, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Is that a comfort and a motivation to you? You may not receive the praises of this world. You may never get a Rosaria Butterfield moment where someone sees your kindness and your good works and you see them turn to Christ. But regardless, if you trust in Christ and follow after Him, at the end of it all, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Brothers and sisters, Christ has called you to a hard road. It's a road of endurance and suffering. It's a road of sacrificial brotherly love within the church and patient enduring of evil outside of the church. But it is also the road to joy. Not the cheap, fleeting joy that this world offers but the eternal joy of your master, Jesus Christ. His promise is not ease and rest in the here and now, but joy in your obedience and eternal rest after the short time of suffering. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Would you all pray with me? Father, what you have called us to is impossible We cannot do it in and of ourselves, which is why we praise You that You have filled us with Your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would not live in our own strength, but we would live by faith in Your Son and dependence upon Your Holy Spirit that we would follow after You for our joy. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.